I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. When you think of actress Audrey Hepburn, it's pretty tough not to have words like glamour and fashion come to mind. And then there are those wonderful movies, like Roman Holiday, for which she won the Academy Award. Sabrina, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Charade, My Fair Lady, and Wait Until Dark, among others. But there was so much more to Audrey than Hollywood. In fact, it would seem that being an actress was her side gig to something much more profound. For starters, there were her tireless efforts in the latter part of her life as goodwill ambassador of UNICEF. This took her on humanitarian missions around the world. And then there was World War II and the life-altering impact it had on her. Now author Robert Matson has written the biography Dutch Girl, Audrey Hepburn in World War II, which is an eye-opening look at Audrey and what she experienced during five years of Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. It's a truly remarkable story that illuminates Audrey Hepburn in a whole new way. I'd like to get a sense from you, though. What is it? What is the mystique about Audrey Hepburn that she she lives on the way she does now that, you know, in people's hearts? That's a good question. I mean, that's a great question. Uh, I'm I am regularly astonished by how many people answer that the news that I've written this book about Audrey Hepburn the same way. And they go, and it's usually women. And they say, I love Audrey Hepburn. Right. And I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to say it's not only this, you know, timeless beauty that she had and the class that she had, but I think it's the way that she culminated her life with incredible charity work, you know, going into the field, going to Somalia, going to a dozen, like a dozen places in 18 months or whatever she did. It was just crazy how many, how many countries and how many situations that she walked into um, on behalf of UNICEF. Right. So, and I, I think that cemented her legend, what she did in the last years of her life. Was that, and this is something I've wondered too, is was the UNICEF thing and her devotion to that, was that a direct result, do you think, of her experiences in World War II? Yes. Yes, 100%. She talked about it. She gave a a long, um, I don't even know what you call it. It was, it was like a white paper, but she talked it um, that told of her experience in Somalia. It was, it was after she came back from Somalia. And she related it directly back to the war. I mean, it took her straight back to the war um, when she visited cities that had been completely bombed out. And when she visited children who were starving because of this war in Somalia, um, she always related her UNICEF work straight back to the war and how important it was when um, Velk, the town that she lived in during the war when it was liberated the first relief that came in was un nra whatever united nations relief agency whatever which was the precursor to unicef and she talked about how they there was food and there was clothing and how they couldn't believe there was such beautiful clothing and it was it was just you know donated clothing from america and 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 she got to wear it and she got to eat real food again. And, and so that stuck with her um, until she was able, until she retired from the screen and she was able to just throw herself into UNICEF work and, 
And uh, I think it was more rewarding to her than anything she ever did on the screen. Well, it, it seemed like with the with the with her movie career that it's something she did, and she may have been passionate about it to some degree, but it wasn't her life. You know what I mean? She made movies. She was an actress. But that it seemed to me anyway. And I'm no student of Audrey Hepburn, so I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. But the impression I get is that. Yes, it's my job and I enjoy it and I'm, you know, whatever, but it wasn't, it didn't define her, basically. No, you're absolutely right. It was never her passion. She never called herself an actress. She would blanch when people called her an actress, even though she won an Academy Award. I think she was nominated four or five times, but she never, she, if she said, you know, well, what do you consider yourself? She would say a dancer a ballerina. That's all she ever wanted to be. And it was just this irony of ironies that she ended up, you know, this beloved screen star when it was something she locked into. It's where the money was. She had um, family to take care of. So she, she, that's the way she went, even though she was happy to walk away from it when she did too. Sure. You know, and yeah, didn't look back. (laughs) It's amazing. No, no. You know, why, why not the dancing thing? I mean, since ballerina, being a ballerina and dancing and all that was so important to, to her, was it as a result of health effects from the war that she just sort of said that I can't do anything with this? Or what led her to acting from dancing, what her true passion was? There are a few factors there. When she was Arnhem's most famous ballerina during the war, Arnhem was the city where she was based as a dancer. And um, then in early in 1944, food became short and she had to give up dancing because of the effects of malnutrition on the one hand. And also the Nazis demanded that she join like the union of artists in Arnhem, which was the culture calmer. And she refused because good Dutchmen did not do that, as she said. So she couldn't perform publicly. She started to perform for the resistance, to raise money for the resistance. But by the time the war ended, after she had survived the hunger winter and almost died of starvation, um, she, re- she realized that she, was, she had lost too much time as a dancer. So that's on the one hand, because she did go and study with some top ballet teachers in Amsterdam and then London, but she had, she was up against girls who had danced, you know, in safety, you know, in free countries in in England and whatever, all through the war. So she was behind and she also had gotten simply too tall. I mean, ballerinas are all of a certain height and a certain weight and a certain build. And she was kind of tall and gangly and she no longer fit the mold of a classic ballerina. So there, she hit the ceiling, you know, she, she hit as she rose as far as she could go by about 1947. And then the handwriting was on the wall for her, as she put it. That's amazing. You know, your book, obviously the focus uh, is world war two. What sort of in your research was your discovery? I mean, about Audrey Hepburn sort of what was the revelation? Should I say, uh, in writing the book that you came out with regarding her? Well, there were a few. Um, one was how, how in the middle of the fighting she was. 
Um, people don't appreciate the fact that she was almost killed by bombs. She was almost killed by bullets. Um, and on more than one occasion, she was almost captured by the Germans and sent to Berlin, where she would have been when the Russians invaded. And who knows if she would have survived that, you know, the, the siege of Berlin. Um, so that's on the one hand, the fact that she was so close to death from starvation during the hunger winter, there was always some poo-pooing um, that things weren't as bad for Audrey and her family. Well, they were very bad because I talked to people in the town she lived, Velp. And so uh, understanding the life and death situation she faced is another thing and her resistance work. Um, people past authors said, oh, she was only 14 or 15. What could she really have done? Right. Well, it, it, in that war, um, children grew up awfully fast, and the resistance relied on children and young people because the Germans didn't suspect them, which put Audrey squarely in harm's way, doing things on behalf of the resistance, running messages, delivering the underground newspaper, and... Uh, dancing, you know, to raise money. Um, those things were, she would call them small things. She said she did her part, um, but they were, they were very important. Sheltering a, a British paratrooper in their cellar. That was a family thing, but she was very proud of doing that. And that's something that had never come to light until her son told me that. Wow. So, you know, those are a bunch of things that I discovered for myself that I was, you know, just made me appreciate Audrey all the more. You know, it's funny, you look at the, you know, again, the whole iconic image and the fashion of, of Audrey Hepburn and all that stuff. And, you know, and, and the people latch onto that. There's such a complexity there. There's so much more to her than I think the general person realizes. They, you know, they look at the glamour, they look at the movies, but God, there was so much more depth there. Yeah, and she was a closed book and an introvert her whole life. And so a lot of that remained hidden. You know, she would not talk about the war experience for a number of reasons. I mean, I found 5,000 words that she did say about the war, but she left, you know, <laughs> a complete memoir's worth of words to, to herself. She was afraid that her mother's pro-Nazi uh, past would come out. That was on the one hand. But on the other hand, she was raised never to boast about herself, never to, you know, to always give other people the attention, never herself. And so that's another reason she wouldn't talk about the war. She didn't want to risk coming off as gloating that I did this in the war. I survived that in the war. So, yeah, she kept all these really important things to herself, which is why uh, her son, Luca, was so thrilled with the book to finally learn what his mother went through. He said he would have to stop and cry regularly because he had no idea. <laughs> wow. That's astounding. Yeah. You know? Unlike, and it's so, so unlike like today's celebrities where, yeah, they may do generous things, but they always make sure there's a photo op there. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like she, I'm doing something nice. Please notice that I'm doing something nice. Right. Right. And make sure, you know, you got my spelling, right. You yeah, know, right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's amazing though. Imagine what a gift it is in a way for you to illuminate somebody's mother to them. Yeah, and it's the second time that's happened to me because 
uh, I did the same thing for Jimmy Stewart's kids when I wrote a book about his combat record, which he would not talk about. Really? And, uh, and yeah, and that's up to that time when his daughter said, you know, thank you for, for letting us know what our father went through because we saw what it did to him, but we didn't know what it was. And so they found that out. So, I mean, yeah, it's an awfully cool thing. Absolutely. You know, what is the, you know, you brought, you brought up the thing about Jimmy Stewart and, and, and now the Audrey Hepburn World War II. What's your fascination with that period? Because obviously you keep dipping back into it. All my life I've been a, a movie guy, Hollywood guy. I love classic Hollywood. My dad put that love inside me. And, uh, and World War II is my thing. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a history graduate and you just put those two things together and, and I happened to find a couple of stories that for some unbelievable reason, other authors hadn't covered and I got to be the one to do it, which is, you know, can't ask for more than that. No, absolutely. You know, you, you brought up the point earlier. you had said at one point about, um, sorry, I'm jumping back here, but with Audrey that like when new clothes a lot arrived, right. And how beautiful the clothes were and all that. Mm-hmm. Did that, pl- I mean, and I don't know how that would really bleed over into the public, but was there something about that that fed into this whole glamour thing about her? That people always carry on about her fashions and that sort of thing? Or is that like, those two, two disparate things that have nothing to do with each other? I don't think they had anything to do with each other. Um, she, she had this clothes horse figure. You know, she was thin and she had broad shoulders and she hated her shoulders. You know, she wished she had these, you know, graceful shoulders like a ballerina, but she had, she was a square-shouldered girl, but it made clothes hang perfectly on her. Right. And the, the fact that she hooked up with Givenchy so early, you know, I think that's just part of the serendipity of this girl's story. That I don't know, maybe she had some breaks due to her because of how bad things were earlier on. Who knows? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned in, uh, or I read it in the description of your book too. They talk about the fact that her father was a Nazi agent. Yeah. So yeah. How conflicted is that <laughs> for her? I mean, you know, the fact that. Well, what both parents had been up to before the war was something that just hurt her. I would not be surprised if it shortened her life. All the stress of what her parents had been, all of the anger at what they had done, um, it it was a tremendous burden for her to carry around all her life. Right. But people loved her so much that even though I think some people had an inkling, I mean, it was no secret her father had been pro-Nazi. He had spent the entire war in a British prison because he was a Nazi. But a, her mother's secret was a secret. And Audrey felt the burden of protecting her mother. She didn't agree with what her mother had done, certainly but she had to protect her mother because that was the way the von Heemstras did things. Right. For, for when she makes the, the leap to movies, when you look at her body of work, which isn't a tremendous body of work, I mean, there's not that many movies really, relatively speaking. Right. What do you, what's your view of them as a whole? When you look back at these movies that she made, she, Audrey was a character of instinct. She talked about instinct a lot. And she had, because she did not have classic training, she did not grow up, you know, in the theater, like almost all actors start out on the stage and then they make the jump to pictures. She did not start out as an actress on the stage. 
she had to act from her first picture on by instinct. And it was the same instinct that I believe helped her survive the war. She translated that into instinct for playing characters. And she was very good at it. You know, she didn't need the classical training. She poo-pooed the fact that she was a good actress. Ah, she's not. And she would say, anything I achieved, I did by instinct. Right. Whatever, however it felt, that's what I did. And so it just shows what a, you know, a genuinely inventive, um, instinctive, perceptive, intuitive person she was. And she did do stage, right? I mean, she did Gigi, right? And uh... yeah, she did that, but it's she did that by instinct too, because she had never, when um, Colette found her in on the beach, uh, making a movie in Monte Carlo. Colette said, "You must come and play. You're my Gigi. I mean, you're the the embodiment of Gigi." And and Audrey said, "I can't do that. Right. I don't know how to." <laughs> She had never acted. I can't do that. I can't go be on Broadway. Are you kidding? But, you know, they said, yeah, you can do it. And she made up a way to do it. And a year later, she made another Broadway appearance in a show called On Dean and won the Tony. <laughs> it's crazy. That is crazy. You know, and, did, and did everyone, when she appeared as Gigi, was the response positive by people? It was positive. I mean, the critics said, you know, this girl clearly doesn't know what she's doing, but we love her. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> Quite the contrast there. You know, uh, you know, we talked about her going to UNICEF, but the, the period where she just said, you know what, I'm going to leave Hollywood. First of all, how shocking was that? And what do you think her motivation was to sort of say, all right, I'm done? Her number one ambition in life, aside from appearing, you know, uh, in the New York ballet was to raise children. And she had several miscarriages in the 50s. She finally carried a baby to term and that's her son, Sean, who was born in 1960. And so Audrey made a few pictures, you know, charade and a couple of others. And after that, she decided she wanted to devote full time to, to her son. And so she did not look back and she made fewer and fewer pictures. She made Wait Until Dark, and then she stopped and didn't do anything until 1976. I mean, like, she was, it was a huge deal when she made her comeback for Robin and Mary in 76. I remember that. Yeah, and that but, reaction to that was strong, right? Yeah, I mean, it was strong for her. The for her, stopped. not the movie itself, right? <laughs> no, not the movie itself, but right. for her, yeah. I mean, like, they, it was a showcase for her. Um but you, the, to answer your question, it was simply to raise her son. And then her second son, Luca, was born in 19-whatever, 70. And so she was completely devoted by then to her second marriage to Luca da, or, uh, Andrea Dotti um, and to raising her two sons then. Right. No right. interest in – there were lots of offers for her to come back, but no interest on her part until Robin and Marion came up. And then it was only, okay, I'll do this picture – if it's, you know, you guarantee me it's only six weeks, I can have my nanny, I can have my kids near the set. And so that's why she did that one. But obviously the experience didn't reignite like this desired act uh, <laughs> doing Robert and Marion. They didn't make her suddenly say, wow, I got to make more of these. 
I could do a book on that. I could do a book on the production of making Robin and Mary and Richard Lester, uh, you know, this famous Beatles director and whatever, did not get along with Audrey at all. He liked to run four cameras at once. He liked to shoot in natural light. And here's Audrey, uh, who, who comes from sound stages and coddling and strong directors who will, you know, treat her like spun glass. Well, this was not that experience. It was made in Spain in the heat. And and it made her realize, you know, Hollywood is no longer for me. Wow. With, with her passing, I mean, was that shocking to people at the time? I don't remember it, to be honest. I mean, I was around. I just, just wasn't paying attention. Uh, was it shocking when she died in 93? Yes and no. I think to people who were close to her, they had been alarmed by how frail she had become, how fast. And her family worried about her going to Somalia in the first place because she went to Somalia, I think, in September, and she died the following January. So she was on this grueling um, uh, mission to Somalia. She gave uh, vast international press about it afterwards, and it took so much out of her. It was the first time that a situation a famine situation, a war situation had devastated her. She had no reserves left. She said she was running out of gas. So, I mean, those close to her were not shocked by her death, but the world was shocked because she was so young, right. relatively. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, let me ask you this about Dutch Girl. What, what am I not hitting you on that you want to get out there? I always like to give people the opportunity to do that. Is there something that I should be asking you about or something you really want to get out there about this book that people should know? Well, you know, the angles, we talked about the angles when you asked the question about, you know, what surprised me or whatever. Yeah. Um, the only thing that we didn't talk about was the, the on Frank story, you know, uh, the diary of a young girl. Um, Audrey was Audrey and Anne Frank were through six weeks apart in age and they lived 60 miles apart in the Netherlands. And um, another thing that Audrey took through her life was survivor's guilt that she survived and Anne Frank had not survived. Really? She had that strong an affinity for her connection to her, she felt. Another of these serendipitous things is that in 1946, before the Anne Frank diary was published, Audrey read the, read the manuscript really? because she happened to be rooming in an apartment building with the editor who was working on, it was called Het Achterhaus, which is Dutch for, you know, the house behind. And um, so Audrey was devastated by this story before it ever made it to print. And, and she kept that with her through her whole life. You know, this, this kinship, she called her a soul sister, which is the title of the chapter in the book and could not, bring herself to really look at this, this connection to Anne Frank until 1989. She actually did a series of readings out of the diary for benefits. You know, she did four of these, a four city tour. And um, I admire her so much for that, for actually getting up. She had a terrible fear of public speaking, but she got up and she did that. She read the diary. Um, for the benefit of UNICEF. Wow. So it's it's just another, I mean, there's so many facets to this incredible story. 
And but interesting that you would feel survivor's guilt. That's amazing to me. To have that yeah. kind of feel, that kind of connection, and then have survivor's guilt for someone you never met. Well, the Green Police took them both. The Green Police came and got Anne Frank and her family and took them away. And the Green Police, which is the Dutch, Dutch Nazi police, wore green uniforms, so they called them the Green Police. And the Green Police, you know, they, they took Audrey at machine gun point. That's how she almost went to, to Berlin. Right. But Audrey got away. Audrey escaped and ran and hid. And the Frank family did not. We hope you enjoyed this look at one of the most iconic figures of Hollywood's golden age. We also hope that you subscribe to this podcast, give us five-star review, and let your friends know about us. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.